Well, good morning, everybody. In some digging through some old boxes down in our basement in the last couple of weeks, I discovered some old computer files at home for which I had to purchase this. Uh, the lower right-hand corner, a uh, external disk drive for your computer, if you don't recognize what that is, that enables you to read those items in the upper left-hand corner, if you don't recognize those. Those are high-density floppy disks. Uh, there's no slot on my iPhone or my iPad for them, which is why I had to purchase the drive. Uh, they apparently aren't used much anymore. I know that, uh, except for coasters. Uh, this is what I bought. I was really excited by the promises on Amazon.com that this drive was going to be easy to use. It was going to be plug and play. It was going to be like the old ones that I had. You, know, you just plug it into your computer. It was going to work seamlessly. It would boot right up, and it would read these disks that I found that actually contained some old family photographs. Now, I don't know if I've saved these photos, if I still have them, what they are, uh, but I was excited by that possibility that I could just hook it up and it would work. Not so much. And all my hopes of recovering those old family photos, no, not going to happen. So this <laughs> is headed back to UPS and to Amazon.com. Because it doesn't work as advertised. This is worthless to me. In everyday life, we tend to gauge value by performance. If we buy something that doesn't work, we return it. Products, even people, have to do what they claim or they lose credibility, right? James applies that same principle in this second chapter of his book to our faith when he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if somebody claims to have faith and then they don't have deeds, works? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, be well fed. And then you don't do anything about their physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, it's just dead. Faith demands action. It doesn't matter how much theology we know. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses we know. It doesn't matter how beautiful our prayers are. If what we have up here doesn't translate to here, actions in our hands, it's not going to make a whole lot of difference in our world. It's not going to make a whole lot of difference to the people we know. It's not going to make a whole lot of difference in our lives and in our relationship with God. James says, if it doesn't translate into action, our faith, it's as good as dead. So we are in the third week of our James series, and this morning we're going to look at the second half of chapter 2, and James is most likely in this section addressing not a hypothetical situation. He's talking about something very real, I think, that's happening in the church that he leads in Jerusalem. 
And part of that, I think, is because of the very vivid detail that he gives. And it's very typical of churches in the first century and how they would conduct the tail end of their worship services. They would end with communion. They would pass the bread. They would pass the wine. And then the leader of the church or one of the leaders of the church would get up and they would offer this blessing to the church as everyone was leaving to go home. And the words, go in peace, were one of the more common benedictions that were offered. It was this simple prayer that was offered that the peace of Christ would go with you, that Christ would watch over you in whatever you faced in your coming week. It was a very sincere, heartfelt prayer that in this particular instance, in this church, had kind of become meaningless words that were just being said as everybody left. Picture this scenario. You have this typical Sunday morning. Everybody's gathering. They're getting ready for church and greeting each other, kind of like our lobby on Sunday mornings here at Westridge. And you have this poor person who shows up. He's a fellow believer, not somebody unknown to them. And he comes into church, and he doesn't have a lot to wear. And his clothes have kind of gotten into a really tattered position, uh, predicament. I mean, he's got this old, worn toga that's really basically down to like an undergarment that he's just piecing together. He's got no outer garment left to put on. And he's having a tough time staying worn. It's really obvious what's going on here. And he doesn't have much food, probably not enough food to get through the day. It's really tough to miss this riches to rags story that's going on in front of the church. So how does the church respond? James says they pretty much go on with business as usual. They don't say anything to this guy. They start the music, have a great message, or an average message, or a poor They just have a message. They have communion. They offer this go-in-peace blessing. And everybody goes home. And they do nothing for this poor person who's obviously in their midst. And James says, Really? What good is that? How does that kind of a church gathering, how does that kind of faith help anybody? And then he goes on to answer his own rhetorical question. He says, without deeds, without any kind of works, without any kind of action taking place, that faith is not authentic. It's just a shadow. It's just a shade. It's just an imposter of real faith. And James won't even give us the wiggle room, the possibility that as a church we could claim, well, that's just not my spiritual gift to do that kind of thing. Some people, James is guessing, might say, well, you know, I mean, honestly, if I had the gift of helps or if I had the gift of mercy or if I had the spiritual gift of serving, I'd do something. But that's not my thing. I mean, you got faith. I've got, I have faith. You've got deeds. So, Maybe if I had that gift, I'd do something. But that's not in my gift mix. James clearly says in this passage, look, any faith, any faith that's not accompanied by action is dead on arrival. A number of years ago, I had a, a good friend who moved to Austin, Texas. If you've never been to Austin, it's a very cool city. 
interesting mix of people. I think the my favorite thing about Austin is uh, that it is different than the rest of Texas. Uh, Austin doesn't claim to be a part of Texas, and if you go anywhere else in Texas, they don't claim Austin, which is just fascinating. Um, but it's this eclectic mix of people and culture, and that's part of why my friend went there. Uh, and there weren't a lot of good churches in Austin, so he just went to start a church. And once he moved there, he started getting to know people. They started getting to know him and why he was there and what he was going to do. And there emerged this consistent pattern in all of the conversations that he had. Everybody's story had the same pattern to it. They weren't so much concerned about what John believed or what kind of church he was going to start. What they wanted to know was, when he started the church, what was the church going to do about the problems they had in their community? So, John, what's your church going to do about homelessness? What's your church going to do about poverty? What's your church going to do about drug addiction? What is your church going to do about the AIDS epidemic? And and when John dug into it, they said, well, here's the bottom line for us. If your church isn't going to make a difference in those big problems in our community, we don't really care what you believe. It's not worth digging into it to figure that out. Because I wouldn't be interested in your faith, whatever it is, if it's not going to address those problems. You know what? I think that's fair. I think that's actually what James is saying here in this whole passage. He's saying a faith without works doesn't work. It doesn't work for the world we live in. It doesn't work for us. And it doesn't work for our relationship with God. James' goal in all of his writing here is to leave no doubt in anyone's mind. If you believe in Jesus, good works are going to be a part of an authentic faith. They're going to show in how we live out our life. And he goes on to give an example to help us understand that. He says, you foolish person. Remember last week I said James is pretty blunt. (laughs) Here's just another good example. You foolish person. You want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Wasn't our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? I just need to stop there. Because like, if you're new to Westridge or you're new to the Bible or you're new to church, you read that and you go, excuse me? He offered his son Isaac on the altar? What's this about child sacrifice? I mean, if you're new to church, new to the Bible, you read that and you go, I, I'm, I may be out. I may just check out, you know? You're all of a sudden questioning, did I make the right decision to check my kids into Westridge Kids this morning? You know, are they safe there? Some of you had a bad morning with your kids, and you're going, "Eh, maybe. (laughs) So we'll come back, we'll explain that in detail. So James says he he was considered righteous for what he did. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said... Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. So let's go back and fill in the gaps in the story. okay? Because it really can be a bit odd just to hear it for the first time, but it's a very cool story. Let's go back into the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. Chapter 14 is where it all kind of kicks off. And Abraham, we find there in that story, is in a little bit of a funk. 
And the reason for that is that Abraham doesn't have any kids. He has no son to leave his legacy to, both spiritually and financially. And so God comes to him in a vision, and Abraham begins to pour his heart out. And he says, God, you've given me no children. And so this servant, great servant, great guy, been faithful to Abraham, but he says, my servant in my household is going to be my heir. And God says to him, look, this man is not going to be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took Abraham outside and said to him, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. That's what James was quoting. Thirty years later, skip forward, Genesis 22. Abraham's now a hundred years old, and he and his wife, Sarah, have a toddler son roaming around. God's fulfilled his promise. He has a son. Now, he has only one son named Isaac. I think it's a fairly safe thing to assume. They're not planning any more kids. I've never met anybody over 100 who's planning to build more of a family. Have you? I think they need psychiatric help if past 100, even if it's physically possible. They're thinking about having more kids. So they're just not. So they've got Isaac. Isaac is their only shot at their legacy. And God says this to Abraham. Take your son, your only son, the son you love. And just in case there's any confusion, he names him Isaac. And go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. That is easily the most shocking command that God has ever given to any human being. I can't begin to imagine the horror that spread over Abraham's soul as those words sank in. Can you? This was contrary to common sense. This was contrary to Abraham's natural affections. It was contrary to his lifelong dream. It flew in the face of everything that God had ever promised him. And it makes it even more shocking that Abraham would obey. But the Bible tells us, with the first morning's light, Abraham gets out of bed. Doesn't say a word to his aged wife, which is probably the smartest thing he did. Summons his two servants, wakes his toddler son. And they begin that terrible journey. Nobody else in the whole world knows the purpose of his trip. He carries that burden alone. For three days they walk. And on the third day, Abraham looks up and God says, there's the mountain. 
And Abraham says to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. And we will worship and then we will come back to you. Do you hear the faith in that? Do you notice the pronoun? We will come back to you. Hebrews in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham was willing to go through all of this because he was convinced that God would fulfill his promises. God would give him a legacy through Isaac, even if it meant that he would have to sacrifice him. He was confident that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's an incredible faith. And Genesis paints the scene of what happens next quite vividly. The poignant exchange between Abraham and Isaac as they ascend the mountain. The dawning sense in Isaac that there is no animal to sacrifice, that he will be the sacrifice. His voluntary submission to his aged father as they build the altar together and then Isaac is bound as he's placed on top of that altar, as his father's trembling hand raises that knife. And at just the right moment, the voice of God comes from heaven and says, wait. No. I've provided a ram that's caught in the thicket near you. You don't need to sacrifice your son. And God says to Abraham, because you've obeyed me, because you were willing to not even withhold your only son from me, I swear by my own name that I'll certainly bless you. I'll multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. James argues that Abraham was considered righteous because of what he did on that mountain. That his actions gave evidence to the faith and the righteousness that had infused his life for 30 years. James is driving home a vital point for us in this passage. A point that faith and works are vital partners in our spiritual growth. That we are sadly mistaken in our life when we picture one as being more important than the other. When we misplace the emphasis. We are saved by grace, true. We don't work to earn our salvation. But our faith in God for our salvation is not enough. It's not sufficient. We work out of gratitude. And those works bring us to maturity in our faith. They function best, faith and works, working together in harmony. They need each other. One may be more visible at times in our life, faith and works, but they need each other. Like a trainer and a boxer, like a coach and a star player, like a teacher and her prize pupil. Serving, good works, become this laboratory where our faith is tested, where it grows, where it matures. And what it requires from us is a willing heart and eyes that are open to see the opportunities that God puts in front of us for our faith to grow when we serve. 
when you see somebody standing by the road holding a sign like this, what do you see? What do you do? It's not hard for us to imagine ourselves looking straight ahead in the car, trying to avoid contact with the individual, eye contact. Praying for the light to change quickly, is it? If we're honest, we do that sometimes. About three weeks ago, Kenyatta Waters was driving through her hometown of Anchorage, Alaska, and she saw this sign and this man at a stoplight. She saw a lot of people just going through the light, windows rolled up, eyes straight ahead. She felt like she needed to stop, roll down her window, and talk to this man. Riding alone in a car. Conventional wisdom says that a woman riding alone in a car should not stop and talk to a man at a light, holding a sign. Just not smart, right? She did it anyway. She felt like God was telling her to stop and hear his story. The man's name is Richard. He introduced himself and he began to explain his situation. He's been a tree trimmer in Alaska for over 20 years. A few months ago, he got laid off and he hasn't been able to find work. And now he's run out of money and he's struggling. That's putting it mildly. He's on the verge of being evicted from his apartment and he's flat out embarrassed to be standing on the street begging for money. But he's doing what he has to do in order to get his cell phone turned back on. Because he's turned in more than 20 job applications. And without his cell phone, potential employers have no way to get in touch with him to let him know if he should come back in for another interview or if he's gotten a job. In his time standing by the road, there are a lot of people who drive by, roll down their window, and he thinks they're going to give him money. Instead, they just yell at him. Get a bum, get a job, you lazy bum. That's helpful. And to Kenyatta, once she learns his story, he appears to be anything but lazy. No computer, no cell phone. He's figured out ways to get a hold of those employers. And sadly, once he does, what he discovers is he's missed several jobs because his cell phone's turned off. They tried to reach him. Kenyatta's touched by his story. And so she takes some steps. She takes him to the AT&T store. She pays for his cell phone to be turned back on. And then she pays not for one month, but two months of cell phone service up front. Richard is moved by what she's done. He's, look, you don't know me. Why are you doing this? She goes, it's not me, it's God. So they get his phone service set up, and she says, look, what? Let's, I just want to learn more about you. Let's grab lunch, my treat, since you don't have any money, obviously. <laughs> and over lunch, he's telling more of his story, and his phone lights up, and he's got a text message from one of the places he's applied. Looks like he might have a job in the next couple of weeks. kind of where the story in the national media ends. You do a little digging, you find out more. 
She set up a GoFundMe page that's now raised close to $4,000 in just three weeks. Ten bucks here, five bucks there. To pay his back rent on his apartment so he doesn't get evicted. To buy him a car so that when he does get a job, because she believes he will, he can actually get to those jobs. Not a big car, just something small used so he can get to work. She also took a step, a courageous step, and invited him to come to church. And after a couple of weeks, he did on Mother's Day. Interestingly enough, I am not making this stuff up. She tracked down his mom on Facebook. Turns out, he's got one of those moms that's been praying for him for years, hoping he'll find his way to church, be open to Jesus. Oddly enough, he went to church on Mother's Day. He's never had a Bible. Could not have got him one. He's open to reading it. He's open to Jesus. I don't know where this story is going to end. I do have a question this morning. Why did all that happen? It didn't happen because Kenyatta is this amazing leader in her church. She's not. She's just an average person. She's going to church, living her daily life. It didn't happen because her church set up a team that was going to reach out to homeless people holding signs on street corners. Yeah, interesting ministry. It happened because on that day, Kenyatta was open to God whispering in her ear, and she put actions to her faith. Because of that, Richard's life is headed towards a different trajectory And I would dare say Kenyatta's life has definitely changed. She made a choice. God has a weird sense of humor. I finished my message Friday afternoon about 3 o'clock. Connie and I went out, do some shopping, have dinner Friday night. We got all done, got in the car, headed back from Woodfield. We were making a left onto Higgins. Stopped at a light, a bunch of cars in front of us. Look to my left, there's a man standing at the light, holding a sign. Want to guess what the sign said? I'm a single dad, no money. Anything you can give would help. I went, really, God? Really? So I have this voice in my right ear going, What are you going to do? The voice in my left ear is going, you know, how do you know it's true? What if he's going to just go drink or he's going to buy drugs? The voice in my left ear, that's not your responsibility. What are you going to do? So I just pulled out my wallet, grabbed a little bit of money and gave it to him. I wish you could have seen his eyes. 
Jesus calls us to open our eyes. Look around. Figure out where it is God is calling us to serve, to do some good deeds, some good works, to make a difference in our world. We don't have to have the whole thing figured out before we take that step. Abraham didn't have that whole three, four-day thing figured out before he saddled up his donkey and started out. He just trusted God, took the first step. Here's what it all comes down to in our lives, I think. I think we're better off just to listen to God rather than ignore him. I think we're better off to give something to that man standing on a corner who might have some kids and be a single dad and take the risk of having him misuse it than we are to miss the chance of helping a single dad with some kids. I think it's better to take a risk with our faith and do some good things in this world, in this community, to get out there and do something and serve and stretch ourselves and put actions with our faith than we are to play it safe and run the bigger risk of living our entire lives accumulating knowledge and at the end of the road finding out that all we've had is a dead, useless, 